What Mad Universe is part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Content warning. Pseudoscience, rape, Satan worship, persecution of witches, animal abuse, and a moiety of divers' blandishments. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. glance at the sky. A cloud up there looked like a squirrel, and the music stopped. Trumpets brayed out alone, a long bloodthirsty clamor that drowned the noise of the gate opening ahead. A great main shape, muddier brown than sand, slunk and passed in the sunlit gateway, with head low and eyes beginning to blaze. Snarl wrinkles deepened, the nose heaved up, the great maw opened and opened beyond belief. A rending roar drowned the fanfare. Lionsell braced himself, left leg forward, wishing he had a spear and knowing himself too unskilled to use one properly. Yells and catcalls and piercing whistles floated for a second in his consciousness. Then there was nothing but the forward padding lion and his own panoply and body, with half of the battle axe rough in his grip and the sand churning a little as he flexed his right knee. Shy Leopardus, 1948, by Leslie Berenger. Hello and welcome to What Mad Universe? I'm your host, Philip Rice, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. Hello. And today we're looking at a, a fairly obscure fantasy series uh, by Leslie Berenger. Uh, the first two books from the 20s and the third uh, from the uh, 40s. Um, we'll be right back after this. Hi, this is Mono, the host of Tokyo Game Life, a Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. It's your slice of gaming life from Tokyo. Every episode features deep dives into gaming-related places to visit in Tokyo, interviews with fans, developers, and experts, plus detailed thoughts on both retro and new games. Tokyo Game Life, only on the Tokyo Beat Network. Uh, and we're back. So this is uh, uh, the Neustrian cycle. That's uh, what it's been called because it's set in uh, Neustria, which was a real place, um, a, a part of France uh, that um, actually fell in uh, uh, quite early. Um, uh, and this is sort of a um, an alternate history of a sorts. When you say it fell, what do you mean? Uh, it got incorporated into larger France over time. Right. Yeah, I, I, I mean, my understanding is that for the Middle, middle Ages... Um, Europe was just this giant patchwork of tiny kingdoms, um, like, uh, and a lot of them took, you know, c came together kind of surprisingly late. Like uh, Germany wasn't a formal 
a single country until like the mid 19th century and Italy took a really long time to be uh, put together. I think, I don't think that actually was a formal country until the 20th century. Um, no, but, but yeah, like, Fra- France was a place at this point. Right. And this right. is um, sort of an alternate version of France again, called mm-hmm. Neustria and they speak Neustrian and there's um, like um, there's real places in France mentioned. Uh, Ger is a, is a um, uh, key location in the books. Um, but it's it's a fictional history. The kings are fictional and so forth. Um, hmm. It seems to be um, the the dividing point in this alternate history, um, according to sources I've read. Uh, uh, let's see, critic named John Clute. Um, uh, the basic premise, uh, basically, that the uh, Merovingian dynasty didn't split apart in the uh, uh, se- in 750, and instead. Uh, they they lasted well into and this takes place sometime in the 1400s. Oh, interesting. Okay, I've heard of the Merovingian dynasty. I know that's a big part of French history. Um, and to the fact that like they they claim to be descendants of Christ, and they were t- they're actually tied up with the uh, da the Vinci whole thing Code with stuff, yeah. the Da Vinci Code, yeah, and the and the Holy Brother, Holy Grail thing, the whole uh, conspiracy theory that yeah Jesus had children. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Right, but um, this is the 1400s, you say? Yeah, I, d- yeah, I didn't. Sometimes, a... like it's not, it's not clear because they say the year of our king, you know, and it's yeah, a fictional yeah. king, so it's hard well. To... I mean, that makes sense because a lot of medieval people probably didn't really know what date it was anyway. You know, they'd have their and plus they all have their own, you know, ways of keeping track of everything, so it might be a little confusing in that regard. Yeah. Yes, and there's also some uh, saints mentioned that seem to be fictional and that sort of thing. So it is an alt history, but it's not. It's not delving into it like a science fiction alt history. Like no. it's not, it's not exploring like what well, what would happen at this divergent point. It's just sort of yeah, yeah. using that as an excuse to not necessarily be historically accurate. Right, a, to have a fairy tale kingdom. It's actually interesting. I, I noticed. I, I for some reason when I read this, I for some reason I thought it was around the '60s or '70s that this was published uh, during the sort of renaissance of uh, fantasy. And and looking at it, it looks like it it was the 20s and that's around the same time as uh, Jurgen which we looked into which also deals with a like fictional kingdom that would that was part of what would become France um which was so that seems like and then you when we looked at the um uh the the uh the um uh the 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 what's it called the one with the guy who switched uh, with the king um the oh oh the, uh damn i'm blanking on it too now um <laughs> The uh, uh, Ruritanian yeah. uh, romance uh, stuff. Uh, um, sorry. That um, all... Oh, God. Prisoner of Zenda. Sorry. Prisoner of Zenda, yeah. Um, and it was a... Um, like, that just seems to have been very popular around the late 19th, early 20th centuries of just all these fictional uh, romantic... As a, as a setting for, a, a, like, a romance, capital R romance, of, like, swashbuckling adventure in sort of a vaguely medieval period. And, and like I say, that area was... Kid, uh, kid, uh, did, 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 the, did uh, Leslie, uh, Leslie Berenger, did she... It's a, it's a woman, right? It's who, a he. Who wrote it? It is a he, okay. Yeah. Uh, yes, <laughs> Leslie, you're not sure. Um, did did he set down like, oh, this is deliberately going to be a, a you know a different set of incidents, or did it was it just sort of like, well, people don't know enough about the Middle Ages, so I'll just make stuff up. Well, uh, yeah, it seems he he wrote seven novels in total. These are three of them. He also wrote three historical novels, um, which uh, uh, and one uh, children's book. 
Um, the, those four books aren't available. This is the only one that, you know, exists today. Yeah, didn't um, go out of print, yeah. Yeah, uh, and it doesn't even exist in, like, physical print. You can get an, you can get e-books of all three uh, with lots of typos in them, I noticed. But, uh, mm. um, uh, but you know, it's it's the best we can get at this point without actually, you know, going to a library going to, you know, read an archive copy yeah. in a library. Um, right. I actually heard of these from a uh, um, friend of the show, Jess Nevins, uh, did a, a yearly uh, Twitter thread on in January. Uh, I, I assume he'll be transporting that to uh, Blue Sky going forward um, of um, books that fell into the public domain that year. Um, mm. Like notable, you know, like pulp uh, books. Uh, right. And this, uh, the first book uh, uh, fell in last year. The second book will fall in this year. Um, mm. And uh, third book uh, was written 20 years later, so that, that won't be for a while. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Right, because it's been 95 years. Yeah. Um, so I, at the time, I, I wrote down some of the ones that interested me, and that this was one of them, and um, uh, finally got around to reading it. I, I, I've read all three of them. You've read the first one, am I right? Yeah, just I only read Gerfalcon or Gerfalcon. I think it's Ger, Gerfalcon. Gerfalcon, okay. <laughs> uh, which uh, is there's an actual bird called the Gerfalcon, and it's mm. but that's spelled G Y R, and this is mm, mm. G E R, which is the place that it's set in. The widening gyre, <laughs> widening gyre with well, the, falcon, the falcon cannot bear the falcon. Or that's probably a a pun on uh, Yates's part there. Yeah, and I looked it up. It, it is a place in France called Ger, uh, so mm-hmm. I, I assume the book's Ger Falcon. Yeah, that's well. See, that's medieval heraldry and things. They would, they would like, they liked puns like that. Right? Yeah, so, his, yeah, and also uh, like the the symbol of Jer and and his and Raoul's house is the falcon. So right, that's because of that, like they would have yeah. associated it with the falcon, and then therefore it would have become the the symbol of the house, basically. Yeah, and it's like uh, you see in Game of Thrones, and that's because they come from similar sources. Not that Game of Thrones right. was influenced by this necessarily. Um, Although you never know, uh, J.R.R. Martin uh, has read a lot of fantasy stuff. He's interested in this. He's done a lot of research and delving we'll, into. We'll talk about that because so, I, yeah. I saw some connections, and I I, I have no mm-hmm. evidence, but I saw anyway. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so there's lots of that. Um, you know, uh, somebody from a, a particular uh, um, noble house is associated with an animal, and like they use like the um, synecdoch or. Er, Whatever the um, symbolist symbolism, yeah. but the, they well, they the refer to the to the people sometimes as that animal or what right. have you. Like mm-hmm. the third book is called Shy Leopardess, and it's because her the the lead of that story is a um, member of a house whose symbol is a leopard, and it's mm-hmm. constantly um, alluding to her as a, a leopardess, uh, to like um, you know the leopardess has claws now, that sort of thing. Or, she has to sheathe her claws, that sort of thing. Hmm. Which actually, uh, now that I think of it, reminded me of uh, the th- running thing in the Amaro books of, uh, you know, the sword is, or the uh, the weapon is forged and the weapon is sheathed and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's at various key points in his life. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's that's that... probably. Um... Yeah. There's. Well, I mean, heraldry was a big deal in yeah. the Middle Ages. Like that was definitely something people would realistically have been very obsessed with interested in it's also interesting that the main character in the first book at least uh which is uh his name's raul he's of of Ger. um he uh um he was very interested in uh, astronomy he kept referencing astronomy 
uh, or sorry, astrology, not astronomy, uh, astrology. So like, oh, I was born with Saturn rising in my house. He, he talks about that. Oh, and clearly that has influenced my nature and so forth, uh, which is really interesting. I, you know, I, 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 I don't know if that's historically accurate or not, um, but it, I can believe it. Um, I, I think just, so. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I know that astrology, uh, well, I, I don't know this. I know, uh, I, I think it was kind of imported over from China. Uh, over the years, because they were the ones who were like, as with many other things, they were the ones who invented so much uh, science, and in this case, pseudoscience. But like, uh, you know, things that uh, you know, uh, intellectual processes, I guess, of one kind or another, you could say. Um, and uh, this, if this is the 14th century, then it, it's it's believable that it had come over by then. But uh, at the same time, like the Romans had all kinds of belief in auguries and and stuff like that as well. So uh, who knows? Um, but yeah, it's, I just found that interesting. He's always he's he's. I don't know if he's supposed to just have been a a character who's more interested in astrology than than average. Or I, I if that's think just... astrology was a thing by the by the fourteen hundreds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. In in Europe, I mean, um, I know uh, Queen Elizabeth had her astrological chart done by John Dee, and yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's and that's a little later, but yeah. Uh, about, yeah, that's later, yeah. but like not that much later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A couple hundred years. No, yeah. no. I, I completely. I, I'll completely uh, believe that, and I do know that um, you know a, a lot of sort of mystical traditions came from came out of you know the Roman era over the years, and this is all post uh, Roman Empire, obviously in the Middle Ages. So, yeah. Anyway, it's just just interesting that that that's something that gets referenced a lot and. <laughs> And uh, whoever uh, Leslie uh, Berenger definitely did a lot of uh, a lot of research on this, um, it would seem, because there's like a lot. It 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 has the feel of something that's been very carefully researched. Uh, again, maybe it's inaccurate, but it sure feels like it, including yeah. the way the characters talk. Yep, and, and the prose itself. It's um, which makes it a little uh, slower to read, but I, I don't think that's mm. necessarily a bad thing. Um, yeah, uh, I I think it is very well written, but. Um, uh, it is, it, it's, I'm not going to say archaic, because it's not written like um, uh, The Worm or Robberus, where it's full of these and thous and stuff, but it, it feels old. Yeah, well, even The Worm or Robberus is probably, it, 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 I would say that felt more, content, didn't feel as archaic as this does, even though, as you say, they don't say thee and thou, uh, but I agree, it's very well written, but it's it's written as, like, somewhat, it's not how they would have spoken back then either, because it probably would have been Middle English. Uh, I mean, but it like, would have been French. They're, they're yeah, French. French. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. It would have been medieval French. Uh, but they, but um, like it, the fact that it's, um, you know, they they use very um, uh, like archaic terms for a lot of things. Uh, at one point, she says, uh, "Oh, a moiety of hum- uh, thus you condemn a moiety of human humanity," which I I believe means a majority of humans. Uh, but they just say that, you know. So like you've got to you've got to sort of spell out things from uh, from context if you don't happen to know these archaic terms. Uh, yeah. Obviously, a lot of archaic like castle terms and, and weapons and so forth. Yeah, uh, gu- I, I didn't even know what grammars uh, grammarcy was. Yeah, I I think it means uh, grace and mercy. Yeah, no, it's uh, like, like an it's exclamation a... of like um, right, uh, like you said, but it's also like like uh, zounds, basically. Yeah, zounds, which is God's. Apparently, it's from God's wounds. Uh, yeah, they, yeah. they just shortened it to zounds. Yeah, that that's a um, a minced oath. Um, mm. God's wounds, like egad is uh, ye gods, that sort of thing. Ah, <laughs> I never thought of that one. Okay, that's interesting. 
Yeah, it's it's it, it when you say um um God's wound, like uh, the the language evolution and and uh, again we're this is supposedly set in France, but of course it's using English terminology and and English words that are more or less of the period to stand in for it. And um like um English was took a lot of weird turns uh, in adapting from like Latin and German and French and all the other languages that got smooshed together. And it, it is funny how the pronunciation evolved. So, so like the the actual original pronunciation of the word knight, as in knight in shining armor, is Knigget. In Monty Python, where he says, you silly English Knigget, he's actually pronouncing knight correctly for the period, um, which is uh, like... It's funny, and it, I, I guess the it was probably the Norman English influence on English, like the French influence, that caused them to make the the G and H silent and all that kind of stuff. Um, but there's a, I always like the fact that uh, uh, there's a place called uh, uh, Elephant and Castle, uh, which is like a common pub name in England and in Canada here too, actually. Uh, but uh, it's from Les Enfants en Castile, which means the the children in the tower, which I guess is a reference to Henry the fifth is it uh the ones who were locked in the tower and um but like they you know the the english peasantry just heard that and kind of morphed it into elephant and castle <laughs> um there's a lot of stuff like that in english uh that that the the, the rules have just gotten so weird over the middle ages so and, and you see a reflection of that in this prose basically yeah um and uh we say it's it's fantasy but that's just because it's not like set in a real world setting there there's witchcraft that happens in it but it's very i mean a, a lot of it's revealed to be fraud and the the stuff that isn't is ambiguous at best right it's the kind of thing it's it's there's there's sort of two prongs to fantasy writing and one is just oh yeah it's a world where just the miraculous is commonplace and people just see it and they don't necessarily shrug but it's it's part of the world and 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 baked into the setting but there's also the way of doing fantasy where like the magical happens at sort of the corners of the world and the in the faraway places where people don't go very often and uh like i I always speaking of game of thrones i always appreciated that uh martin did that well where like uh there was magic but it's something that the characters didn't understand any more than we would and it's weird and mysterious and the rules aren't clear and there's always sort of a horrific inhuman feel to it like if you become a wizard you you're a guy who's lived underground and you've had to drink blood for 20 years and your skin turned blue and you you worship a beating heart and all kinds of like weird stuff like the 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 cost of magic is to sort of separate yourself from humanity anyway there's a trace of that here it's like witchcraft is just as weird to the characters as it would be to us whether it's real or not it's it's the the sort of imposition of the supernatural into an agreed upon reality Mm -hmm. rather than just something that you oh yeah we've got a witch in our village and they do all the magic for us you know that kind of thing yeah i mean uh like i said like in in book two there's uh um a uh a witch's coven um meeting and there's like a demon that shows up but it's revealed that it's a guy in a costume and like he's fooling the witches too like they're in a religious trance and sort of susceptible Mm -hmm. to belief so yeah it's um but there are like uh prophecies some of which come true uh some of which are also revealed to be fraud so yeah it's it's ambiguous <laughs> he sees uh raul in the first book at one point he's out spending the night in the uh, among the sort of stonehenge not the stones stonehenge but like the the stones and the, the singing the, stones the, 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 the singing stones yeah and he sees uh, uh 
a being with a uh, uh, the head of a deer uh, playing the pipes in the middle of the night. And, um, you know, whether he was just dreaming it and didn't remember. He doesn't describe it as a dream. He describes it as something he actually sees. And he thinks it's the devil, basically. Yeah, um, I, I think that's uh, uh, the same uh, faker that's revealed in book two. Okay, like, but why is he wandering around in the moors in the dead of night on a, in a storm, you know? Yeah, like, uh, unclear. I mean, that's that's what I assumed, but I guess that makes sense that it, yeah, it yeah. could just be... I, I would read it as, like, again, if, if I, like you say, they're they're leaving room for ambiguity with all this, but I would, if you're going to interpret it as realistic, I would just say he, he was dreaming and didn't realize, because he's exhausted and he's bunking down for the night when it happens. And and also, or, or maybe he just saw a deer and he didn't realize what he was looking at, you know, that kind of thing. But, like, it's it's to evoke a sort of, oh, something, like, it, it, it's, it occupies the place in a story that would be occupied by a dream normally, I would mm-hmm. say. Uh, so, I mean, it's not hard to interpret it as a dream. There's also a weird bit at the end of the book, the first book where they, they declare, oh my god, we're under attack uh, by Joris of the Rock, who's this powerful bandit who's been talked about and then suddenly shows up at the end of the, the story. Um, and they're, we're under attack by men with beast heads. Uh, that is revealed to be just uh, the outlaws of Joris wearing, I guess, masks. Although it's it's strangely ambiguous on that point what that person thought they were. Maybe yeah, that person uh, we, was we just see wrong. this fight uh, in the second book. There's overlap um, of events. Uh, oh, okay. I guess we'll we'll talk about uh, structure because it, um, yeah, the the second book uh, takes place both before, after, and during the first book. Um, it covers the. Uh, the, the life of Joris the Rock and his um, uh, illegitimate son, who doesn't know he's the, the son of Joris of the Rock, um, who a- ends up killing him at the end uh, without actually learning that he is his uh, father. Um, and um, uh, like I said, the, it, it overlaps, like it covers events from the first book, but from like Joris's perspective and from other characters' perspectives. Hmm. Yeah, interesting because Joris is not really a character in this no. at all. He's he's he just and he's almost uh, I don't want to say Deus Ex Machina. He's like a Diabolus Ex Machina because he suddenly shows up to attack them all at the. I mean, and you the 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 chain of events is made clear enough afterwards, but like you weren't expecting you, you, the a lot of the conflict in this in the first book is resolved like two thirds of the way in, and then they're just sort of settling down, and you're like why is this book still going and then it's that they're suddenly attacked by Joris of the rock yeah uh like like i said like this is covered from his point of view in the second book um uh the the um his life is um he uh, res- uh fell in love with uh red ann who's a, a witch woman the um uh leader leader of the coven of the singing stones um who uh is a character in the first book uh he had at an early point in both their lives saw her and fell in love with her instantly and became like completely obsessed with her. He was already a criminal by this point. Um, and, uh, he received, uh, a prophecy that, uh, he interpreted as, um, it, it was like told with like, uh, red will do this and black will do this. And she has red hair and he has yellow hair and her, um, lover had black hair. So like he, he just interpreted this in a way that he, he'd eventually, win her uh it's discovered later that this was a generic prophecy that that um uh fortune teller told and he just interpreted it in a way that uh you know wishful thinking sort of thing yeah right um 
as 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 fortune tellers tend to do as anyone as Nostradamus could tell you yeah um uh so so yeah it it focuses on on his um obsession with her and like his, his whole life is is to get this woman um uh to him and you know so wait is Joris like the protagonist of the second book no it it follows it, he's half the he's half a protagonist it follows him and his son Oh, okay, I see. Because he does he, now. I, I actually wasn't clear, but it seems like Joris is killed at the end of the first book, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, he is, uh, he, he escapes. Okay, he's killed but he's later. Not, but he's okay. Yeah, so he's not like he's he seems to be taken off the board as a threat if, after the first book, at least. So uh, that's he's why definitely I read it. diminished, though. He, he he makes a comeback towards mm. the end. Okay, Kid, uh, kidnaps the um, uh, person who's going to be the next king and uh, holds him for ransom. But then Red Anne betrays him and converts to Christianity. Okay. Oh, he wasn't Christian before that. Oh, because they were... Well, she wasn't. She was a witch. Right. Okay. Uh, He Uh. also... Yeah, it's a running thing. His mother was burned as a witch, and he has a hatred of Latin. Like, hearing Latin will drive him crazy. It's like his, you know, his rage button or whatever you want to call it. Uh, He's also been excommunicated. um, And so, yeah, priests just piss him off. I see. But he, but he converts eventually. No, no, she converts. Ah, okay, okay. But this is... All right, gotcha. She converts to Christianity and rescues the king and betrays him, and then uh, Joris is screwed. He was, like, ah, positioning himself so he'd ransom off the king, the, the new, or the next king, uh, the soon-to-be king, for, um, an, like, an, uh, an official uh, um, position within the, within the court. Like he was gonna, uh, you know, crime himself into legitimacy. <laughs> yeah, right. And get okay. recommunicated. Uh, yeah, I see. Gotcha. So Which, it's kind uh, of again was more uh, for like social, you know, standing right. than his actual belief. But yeah, yeah. And and so it's kind of about Red Anne, the second book. Then yeah, yeah. Uh, she she's. I mean, it it doesn't like. Uh, go into her head like it does with Joris. Like it's it's second person. Up. Oh, interesting. Okay, so Joris is sort of the viewpoint character, though. Uh, for the it follows either him or his son again. I see. Okay, and interesting. The son part is like a coming of age story again. He the mm. son um, again who does not know he's the son of Joris the Rock. Um, Joris uh, uh, raped the boy's mother I, again. He is not a good person. Uh, <laughs> No, no, he's a bandit. He's the villain of the yeah, first book. He's yeah, he's sort of uh, like presented as like a Robin Hood type at first in the second book, but then we reveal that he's just a, you know. Yeah, yeah. He's a piece of crap. Um, yeah. Uh, like it's, he, it's interesting because that was the era, like the Robin Hood movie with Errol Flynn uh, hit around the same time, mean, a little later, it was the 30s. But like that that was the the vibe of fantasy like overlapping into fantasy but also you know historical adventure novels of like this the middle ages and 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 uh yeah like robin hood being a big uh very popular uh character at that time like not that he hadn't always been but he you know he he made a bit of a resurgence around that time and that's you can see that that whole uh that whole uh vibe coming from this book as with like jurgen and so on oh yeah king arthur as well was uh was kind of popular around there because like th white wrote the sword in the stone around this time as well i believe the 30s um like that arthurian fantasy was probably the go-to and and it's funny that 
as we've seen, was Leslie Berenger uh, American or uh, uh, English? Br- English. Okay. Um, like there's there's definitely a for much of the 20th century there's a bit of a reticence to do pure fantasy. Like it's not like it, it's that's that's kids stuff is kind of the attitude for a lot of it. Um, it it sort of came back in the 60s partly due to Lord of the Rings as we've discussed. Uh, but it is really interesting that like. A Jurgen is unusual in that it has it's very un, un, unequivocally a fantasy book, but most of them seem to be closer to what we're say what we're seeing here, uh, at least in English, um, where it's there's kind of a mix. But our, the Arthurian stories could always be uh, fantasy, and there is our King Arthur uh, King Arthur stuff in this book. Um, like it's the the, the uh, Raoul loves King Arthur um, and references it a lot. In fact, he's writing a, a an Arthurian ballad in the story. Yeah, that's um, actually uh, from the point of view of um, Mordred, which is interesting. Right. Yeah, that's actually an interesting idea for a for a story. Clearly, we're not supposed to think it's well. Again, you're, this is an alternate timeline, I guess, but we're not like the uh, Raoul is is depicted as a poet and a and like a, a a wordsmith and a writer as much as he is a a, a warrior and a the you know the heir to a um, the heir to a castle. He's a you know he's a he's. What was the situation at the beginning? It was a little complicated for me, but he was he was basically being raised until he was ready to claim his uh, castle of Mark. It was actually Markmont, not not Jer, if I yeah. remember correctly. Um, yeah. uh, and then um, his his uncle died, um, and so he inherited. Uh, he he would like he'd be in a position where he'd inherit Jer, uh, and then uh, he he didn't like like the the. Um, person he'd have to live with was very cruel so he runs away and then he has to sort of go on the run right yeah it's 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 the adventures of a guy who you know it's him going out to find himself as much as as anything yeah. else but yeah his all his three own... of these are, are coming of age stories uh the second one less so but the parts that focus on um uh Joel, which is the son um are coming of age stuff and the third one is is coming of age story from a female point of view which is interesting yeah, that's good. Yeah, what is the third one about? What happens in that one? Okay, so the third one's actually, uh, and it's the one I read most recently, so it's it's the closest in my mind, but um, it, it was my favorite. It was written 20 years after the second one, which is interesting, um, that he, he just sort of, he took a long break and then returned to this setting. Um, and it's set 10 years after uh, the events of the second book uh, end. Um, and it's about a... Um, uh, a girl who's uh, put in a, a similar si- situation uh, where she's um, um, uh, going to uh, inherit a uh, 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 duchy, um, her um, future uh, husband who she's been promised to. Oh, she's like uh, 14 at the beginning of this. Um, her future husband uh, uh, dies. There's like plague going around the the, uh, the kingdom at this point. And... Um, uh, then her uh, uh, father and um, her whole like court um, get um, uh, killed in a in a seeming bandit raid that turns out is um, uh, part of a um, a plot by um, uh, a relative uh, another noble to sort of um, uh, marry her her to his son uh, and then you know get control of her property. And then, um, as part of a wider plot to, like you know, overthrow the king and all this stuff, um, 
and she has to uh, sort of navigate through a very tough situation. Her um, uh, her now uh, betrothed, um, and she's not going to be um, having to sleep with him for another two years because she's too young. But she gets married to this this young man uh, who sort of has Joffrey vibes, like he's a complete just mm. like you want to see this guy die. <laughs> Um, he's like, he's, he's handsome and like outwardly charming, but he's clearly a sociopath. Like she, she has a cat and he, um, says, I don't like cats and, and throws the cat to his dog and kills the cat Mm. like a kitten. Yeah. Like that, this is one, one of the first things we see from him. It's, it's very much a, uh, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, uh, you know, Dio kicking the dog in the first episode. Okay. Um, <laughs> don't make references to anime. I don't know anime. No, uh, but it is he, definitely interesting that these books Dio are not a... Dio kicks the dog in the first episode, and that's sort of one of the first things he does, and it, it sets up that he's bad. <laughs> you don't say. John Wick. Um, but uh, you could you could have just said John Wick. Uh, but uh, no, the um, it is interesting that this book is very much... Uh, it's unapologetic about, yeah, lords and... and and powerful people are, and like the nobility, can be big jerks. Basically, like it's it's not trying to glamorize them at all. Like, yeah, in fact, I th- I'd say almost every, at least in the first book, every powerful noble we meet is dodgy. I don't think there's any like really nice uh, noble people. I I, I guess there's a couple well, later on. Yeah. Yeah, like, and Ra- yeah, Raul himself. Well, that's the thing. It's like Raul is the guy who, because he's actually had experiences and stuff, and and lived, you know, not in a cushy palace, he's able to become a good leader. And he's, it's sort of implied that he's exceptional in that regard, basically. Yeah, he's not it, just... it is. He he appears in all three, like as a, a minor character in the other two, uh, and in the third one, he he actually mentions that that um, part of what keeps him uh, good and honest is knowing what it was like on the other side. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's kind of that the man of the people that's that's why i mean not to not to go like uh uh not to be like um down on the british entirely but like uh they uh uh you know they they're a little more the the writing tends to be a little more uh sympathetic towards the nobility and and uh look positively upon the 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 nobility and the monarchy whereas americans would probably you know like as the as with the prince and the pauper They'd, it's the the difference between the prince and the pauper and the prisoner of Zenda, right? Like you'd have a, a one guy who's wait, prisoner of Zenda was that a, an American writer or, an, or a that was British? British. They were yeah, they're both yeah. British stories, I think. No, the prince and the pauper is by Mark Twain, so oh, it's okay. American. Sorry. And yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it's it's uh, you can see the difference in viewpoint again. Not to be like yay America, poo Britain, but like y- there's a bit more of a populist viewpoint of like yeah, you can't really root for a monarch unless they've had they've lived they've been down on the ground at some point instead again, of just this, making this them... is a british author who wrote this yeah well that's what yeah so that's why i'm surprised okay. yeah like that's not that's not often what you see and then we were talking about the scarlet pimpernel which was you know oh yeah uh, well you know, that she's she had her own issues with the... yeah well that was a very specific thing but it was the idea of like yeah let's praise the ability anyway it's just uh, it, as a general rule i would say you're more likely to find um uh, you're you're more likely to find that attitude coming from the Br- and and it's not even that they're like radical anti-monarchists or pro-monarchists even it's just the the baked in assumptions uh, like even up to as we were saying with the prisoner of Zenda like when you get up to the modern times um, you know you see something like um, 
the princess diaries and it's like well she's you know we're on her side because she's a regular girl who becomes a princess right which is in fact like that's a fairy tale thing you know it's a it's a common thing in in folklore you're going to get the regular girl or regular guy who becomes monarchy they they ascend to royalty whereas in like mythology which tends to be a little bit more of the established sort of national narrative uh, and and like the official religion of the time, uh, it's it's much more likely to just be about people who were born monarchs and their adventures, you know, and and everyone else is a shield bearer. Uh, I, I make I'm making very broad uh, generalizations, but you know that is an interesting thread you can observe in a lot of writing and, and different time periods and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, uh, Elon, I am actually it. just I was just googling Beringer right now, and uh, they were a Quaker apparently. Yeah. Uh, that actually tracks a bit because the quakers tend to be a bit more about you know uh you know looking after the regular people they have a bit more of a a populist viewpoint in some ways than say the anglican or the catholic church might um anyway that's just interesting to me so yeah so uh uh Ilond, and like i said it's a it's a coming of age story there's two boys who are also uh partial viewpoint characters uh lion soul and uh uh diomede um who uh, she she's in love with both, but like their their pages and um, it, it has sort of a love triangle thing, which um, like you'd see in like a modern um, YA book. Like the third one had very like it's a well written YA book basically, which mm, is interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like well, a I teenage mean, wh- female protagonist, a love triangle. She actually <laughs> um, ends up sleeping with both uh, uh, behind you know, and it's not like played as like the book doesn't judge her for it she's she's hmm. just in love with both and um uh they they both end up uh uh dying at the end um hmm. and uh she she's left alone and it's uh implied at the end that the the uh the king uh who's um now single cuz his his wife was uh cheating on him with um uh her future uh husband who she hated um all these, yeah. Um, so she's possibly going to become the queen. Oh, okay. Yeah, that you know that that the the baseline for like young adult storytelling has been around for a very long time. I mean, it's uh, it goes back to. I mean, you can even if you squint, it's sort of the, the King Arthur narrative, you know, and and a lot of the yeah the more exciting I mean, folktale stuff. Is yeah, like but uh, a lot of the tropes are here, and it's interesting. Like, I'm not saying that as a criticism. I. I like the third book, yeah, yeah. most of these three, but uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, um, for sure. And, and and it it is as you say. Like I wasn't sure because the name was Leslie. I wasn't clear on whether it was a man or a woman. Um, and and I kind of thought, oh, it's, there's a very female viewpoint to all of this because a lot of female characters, sympathy to the female characters, even when they're witches who are theoretically worshiping the devil. <laughs> you know, not like, not just theoretically, they're worshiping the devil. Well, they're worshiping I devils. Mean, no, this I, is spelled I, out in book two. Okay, I kind of read that as like it's you know I mean as the old religion, right? So well, it might but, be but, like a pagan thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think I mean it, it, those two things got very bound up. Obviously, to a Christian, if you were still worshiping the pagan deities, you know, by the 14th century, it was like, oh, that's devil worship because all the non-Christian deities are devils and so forth like that, and they kind of flatten everything into devil worship. And I mean, I don't know to what degree that would have been true among the pagans themselves but i can definitely see the like the 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 desire to sort of say oh well uh you know 
if if you're going to call me a devil worshiper, then sure. Ooh, I love the devil. He's so great. You know, like that. Like we'll just say, yeah, because she says um, the 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 witch who he meets in the first book, the first witch whose name I've actually forgotten, um, says um, like, oh, it's the one you would call the devil. But that's not saying that it's the devil. Okay. Uh, it's it's saying that you know. Um, you you know if you say uh, this is how you got you simple minded fools think of it as the devil but it's actually way more complicated than that anyway that's how i would read it yeah, not that they're uh, like again, yeah we love uh, the devil sympathetic female characters throughout like it is almost fe- like i'd say the third book is feminist like it it feels very modern for especially hmm. for 1948 um uh there there's even like uh she's left in um uh like under the thumb of a uh, older female relative who just talks nonstop, and like there's like paragraphs of text of her talking, and like she's clearly like a very self-centered and and selfish person, but even she gets a lot of uh, sympathy by the time she she's dying and towards the end of her arc in the story, um, mm. the the older the older woman, and um, uh, like yeah e- even like she she has like a tragic backstory or one of her daughters or all of her children had died and uh young and um uh yeah it's it's interesting sort of treating uh, a lot of these um characters with like an understanding of this was i mean i i guess anybody would be able to tell you know the medieval times was not very good for women but like this really goes mm-hmm. into sort of detailing why yeah i mean it's it's it, it is actually interesting but like um, I, I, there's a tendency, I think, there, I think we kind of went back and forth on the medieval period because, like, there was a tendency to glorify it for a while, um, coming out of sort of a, and let's face it, there was a certain level of imperialism and white supremacy and, like, all that kind of stuff It was that was going back and, and, and elevating that. Um, but also just, you know, it's, it's fair. It's part of the, the culture of Europe that's been around for a long time. Um, but, like, then there was sort of the pushback. Oddly enough, I feel like I can peg it to, like, Monty Python uh, and the Holy Grail, where they went out of their way to say, like, one of the big themes of that is, yeah, it was terrible. You were living in, you know, the the human excrement and and like wallowing in garbage all the time like you know like the plague hit, would hit you every other day and you know like there's a there's a whole commentary on that and i think people started to understand that you know the the life in the middle ages was not was probably not a lot of fun no no argument there uh but i think there's been a there's been a bit recently with scholars and things to reclaim it a bit as like it wasn't brutally savage and like non-stop horror and torture and a lot of the things we think about like when we say medieval like you know i'm gonna go medieval on you like is is literally used to uh, uh portray brutality and, and and savagery um and i think that there's been an attempt to sort of say well you know let's let's hold on a minute including the fact that, that we call it the dark ages uh as if like nobody had any you know and, and it's sure it's true that um a lot of the infrastructure that led to people being uh more educated and more uh you know safe in some ways that did fall apart over that period but um as as uh, one uh writer i was reading just recently pointed out it's like we have a tendency to think like the renaissance is the rebirth of culture because it was the rebirth of economic uh like the economy improved for a lack of a better term uh trade picked up and and you know it was the or it was the beginning of capitalism and you know like that was the period where we start to say oh well they were 
they were pulling themselves out of the dark ages. And no one's going to argue like art didn't get better in a lot of uh, things didn't get better in a lot of ways. But in many ways, the dark ages, like the thousand years before that, were just different. Uh, you know, they were there were things like the Black Plague, and there were there were bad things. But the fact that they weren't imperialist tends to make us think, oh, they were lesser. And and it's you can you don't want to fall into that trap of just because they weren't going out and conquering the world as they did later uh that they were lesser that it was everything was terrible and a, a part of that is like it, it's quite possible that um uh, somebody else uh, sorry to ramble on about this um so somebody was making a, an interesting point that like a medieval peasant technically like legalistically had nowhere near the rights that we enjoy in our modern era right but at the same time because of the lack of infrastructure and like they didn't have surveillance culture and and the way things were in that uh that that time frame realistically that peasant might actually have in some ways more freedoms than we have like you know they couldn't uh you know like they had actually like you know all the feast days that exist under catholicism they would get all of those days off they would only actually have to work about like half the year technically when you add it all up um you know, and yeah, you could like technically they were free to run off into the woods anytime they felt like it. There was nothing to like. You'd have to basically become a bandit. You wouldn't have you wouldn't have a rich and full life living. Uh, you know, off of the uh, the small hamlet where you were born or the castle where you were born. Uh, you know, it was a choice of bad options. But you know, if you look at it from one perspective, there was a lot of freedom. So it's it that's true of a lot of things, and I think that was true of like the the relationship between men and women because like yeah, of course, women didn't have any legalistic rights in most ways. But women, you know, it was a bunch of poor people living in a small hamlet, like the local wise woman would probably have a lot of say. And, you know, a, a, a nobleman's wife would probably, you know, be well educated. And maybe she there are a lot of examples of like uh, uh, noble women who became like the power behind the throne. Right. Because they they uh, they they turned they turned out really smart and they knew to manipulate their husbands and manipulate the system in ways to to you know display actual power so you know there's a there's a lot of ways in which you can't underrate it but yeah like in this scenario like a a woman put into a like a young girl who's betrothed to marry somebody who she absolutely hates and she has no way out of it and um yeah i i i just feel like there's yeah absolutely no no question there i mean being it's not a good situation to be in you know it's a it's a case of um you know, the monarchy is kind of a trap for the monarchs as much as anyone else, right? Like the monarch, you you, you, you didn't get to pick who you're going to marry. You don't have, in a weird way, you don't have a lot of freedoms as the king because you have to do things a certain way to maintain the monarchy. Like it's that, it's 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 sort of a catch-22. But you can look at it from a number of different perspectives. Anyway, it's, I, I just, I think that um, it's important to notice that like, you know, like as always, we kind of underplay what women were doing in this period because the histories are all written by men. So you do have to be careful about how much more you know complexity uh, there was going. Yeah, on. though uh, again, yeah. like the main character of this book is female and manages to to mm-hmm. um, maneuver right. herself into a good situation. So yes, yeah. There was actually a good uh, video by uh, uh, the person who does Philosophy Tube. Uh, I believe they uh, they've they 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 go by uh, she her uh, at this point, but they um, they uh, um, they did a thing about how witches are sort of they represent the uh, like the imperial like the the pushback against imperialism and against uh, to a certain extent capitalism, but even before capitalism happened, it's the stuff that gets outlawed and pushed into the margins, and it's a you know it's a celebration of 
that aspects of life. And people would go to the witches because they would know stuff. They'd be passing on, you know, medical knowledge that wouldn't have existed anywhere else in, in some ways because they you know and it's folkloric wisdom you know like it, so there's a there's a lot of interesting sort of stuff in the crevices to consider about that period anyway mm-hmm. yeah uh also like but like i said i i i really feel like there's a lot of like uh uh good feminist readings of of these books um mm-hmm. uh I, I again like she's she sleeps with two two different boys uh Mm -hmm. uh she's not judged by the narrative for it uh she actually um admits it to raul um at uh at the end and says that she's not ashamed of it um um yeah it's um oh uh there's also um uh a peer of hers um a slightly older uh young girl is sleeping with a priest um and like she seems to to judge the priest but uh um even he's like um like there there's sympathy like they're they're these two characters are clearly in love and stuff uh though right. the, she she doesn't like the priest because he burns a lot of witches um yeah well obviously um yeah uh these books also uh like like we talked about the writing being like sort of there there are like good lines like really really clever bits of writing i there's uh i mentioned that uh, woman who talks constantly um when, when she died the the line in the book was uh something along the lines of she died as she lived mid sentence <laughs> that's nice um and there's like yeah uh, it's a, it's a it's very well written like just even just from paragraph to paragraph there's a, a real poetry to the to the prose it's it's really well done yeah, and a lot of poems. There's a lot of original yeah, actual poetry and songs and stuff. Yeah, you can see how, like, J.R. Tolkien, his stuff has all these poetry and songs in it. And you can see how that was, like, because that was, he, he came along just a little later after this. You can see how he was coming out of that period. It was like, if you're writing something archaic, there's going to be songs and, and poetry and wound bound up into it. And honestly, even, like, Robert E. Howard, who wrote Conan, he, he wrote poetry. And, like, poetry and pulp were not as far apart on the literary scale back then as they are nowadays, yeah. which is really interesting to me. There's also a, a thing in the third book where it starts out and it she's um, uh, having to, like, a, as part of her duties as the uh, young, um, you know, lady-in-waiting, or what, whatever the phrase is, uh, like, give tours of, of her keep, and she just says, and that's called Lake Falchion. It's called that because, you know, so on. And it, it says, you know, she's memorized all this by rote. At the end of the book, when Roel uh, reveals that uh, the king wants to marry her, um, she she starts going into that spiel again because she can't think of anything else to say. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, um, uh, so I, I mentioned uh, J.R.R. Martin, and there's there's no evidence that he read this, but like he might have. Uh, yeah. This uh, this was quite obscure in in Beringer's time. Like I don't think it was really known, but it, it was sort of rediscovered by. Uh, some fantasy authors in the uh, uh, 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, yeah. Uh, Lynn Carter was one of them. Uh, and L. Sprague de Camp, yeah. Yeah. They were the, it sounds like basically, as we mentioned, you know, when, when uh, Tolkien uh, was released in 
the 60s dubiously in paperback, like legally dubiously in paperback, uh, and became a, an absolute craze, uh, there was suddenly this uh, swarm of fantasy. And a lot of it was digging up old fantasy and uh, uh, bringing it back. Uh, like when we talked about um, uh, the, uh, the the Robert E. Howard, like uh, Jor-El of Juari stories, uh, and Robert E. Howard's uh, Red uh, D- uh, Dark Agnes stories, like that was the kind of stuff that they dug out and sit and and republished and became like a bit more of a that the nerd fantasy became huge. And it sounds like a lot of books like this got dug out and 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 rediscovered at that time too. So it was it was the trend. Yeah. So it's possible George R. R. Martin read it, and like there are, like I, I especially felt it in in Yolande and. Um, uh, Balthazar, uh, whose nickname uh, Balfagor, uh, throughout the book, um, <laughs> mm. that um, th- their relationship very much felt like Sansa and um, and Joffrey. Mm-hmm. Well, remember George R. R. Martin was a he was a Marvel nerd. Like he is, he was published in Marvel letter columns in the '60s and stuff. And those kinds of people tended to be obsessive about digging up and reading old. Uh, novels so I, I think it's entirely possible that he's read this yeah and it, i mean they're also him. drawing from the same sources you know right. actual medieval right. ballads and stuff so yeah and um, the and the other as i've mentioned like it seems like in the 20s and 30s that's that was the vibe of fantasy like the early 20th century fantasy there was quite a bit that was similar to this i think that and that that's something he might have been drawing on like researched historical uh arthurian you know, ar- pseudo archaic stuff. I think that was actually a big, uh, a big deal. So there's probably a whole wave of stuff. But this does, as you say, specifically seem to to link up specifically with the the, the Game of Thrones type of vibe in some ways. Yeah, uh, like again, book three also has like a, a clever dwarf character, uh, mm-hmm. like a, a a little person, not not mm-hmm. like a fantasy dwarf. But yeah, right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I would I would highly recommend these books. Uh, like there, there's certain aspects that um, uh, again, like it, they took a w- long while to read. They're they're not short, but they're not super long either. But they they took a while. Yeah, it was. I I, I know what you mean. When I was reading through it, I was a little bit like. It, it, I had to kind of stay focused on it just because of the way the language is. It's 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 it, like I say, very eloquent, very like musical, but it also has a lot of turns a phrase that are a little bit hard to follow both because of how archaic they are and because of the way the characters sort of refer to things obliquely sometimes so that it's not totally totally clear what happened uh yeah it, it takes a lot of uh it takes a lot of focus to read these yeah but they're they're a lot of fun to read like it really sort of stirs the the language center of your brain to read these as well they're really cool in that sense yeah um uh, yeah, I I think they they deserve to be a lot better known than they seem to be. So, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, thanks uh, uh, to Jess for for introducing me indirectly to these. Yeah, very cool. Public domain now, so well, check them out. First I got two. a yeah, the first two. I got I I, uh, I I did actually I bought it on Kindle. I didn't see any spelling errors. It seemed pretty straight up. I just bought it straight off Kindle. So, um, you can get it on Kindle. It's by Leslie Berenger. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. I, I also there's a character in the third book, a minor character named Sir Janus, uh, who's a lot of fun. Uh, he like wears a, a full like all his armor is silver. He wears like silver clothes. His shield is just a blank silver uh, symbol. Um, uh, and he's like a, a I don't know, like a, a hard drinking, womanizing, but he's like noble and and he. 
he likes poetry and um yeah i i i would have liked to see more more uh, like a spin-off with that character or something but <laughs> Well, he he might have written a spin-off if it uh he had been he had kept going with the the series. It sounds like for whatever reason he lost interest and then came back to it briefly and then didn't. Yeah. Um, anyway. But uh I guess, yeah, it's, I it's guess they weren't successful. He only appears so. in the third book, which is not public domain, so I can't necessarily use that character specifically, <laughs> but um, in the Apex society, yeah. Yeah. Right. I I I was thinking of uh ways to reference this in Apex society. I mean, there's like uh it would have to be oblique because, like, the history doesn't line up. Like, you know, France exists in the Apex Society, so. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I don't know. I, I could reference like some of the saints that that are not real uh, in this book, sort of the alternate history saints or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah, highly recommended, and uh, uh, yeah. Well, Gramercy, all ye fine folk, our quest is at an end. And we must away till we meet again on the plane of battle in the next episode of What Mad Universe. We've been Philip Rice, Viscount of York, and Adam Prosser, scoundrel leader of a pack of outlaws. Our producer was King Alex of the House of Ross, and our theme music was skillfully plucked on the lute by our court minstrel, Jack Fierick. Just a reminder that we both have Patreons, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. And if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, illustrations, comics, among other things. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or what-mad-universe.pinecast.co what for the links. You can also follow us on Blue Sky uh, at WMU Podcast. Is that it? Is uh, B- uh, wmupodcast.bsky.social yes thank you or uh, prankster36 for Adam or Spear Havoc with an F for me but for now we wish you safe travels and the blessings of the Sir God Sir God